thanks for this morning. Thank you for the truth of the songs that we just sang, the truth that we just sang, that we proclaimed before you with your people. Um, Lord, though we don't understand it, your word says that through us, through the church, you are magnifying your name even to the rulers and authorities, the angels and demons in the heavenly places. And though we might not be aware of them this morning, Lord, just before all of creation, we sing and we just declare that you are worthy. We thank you for all that you're doing. We thank you for the victory of Jesus Christ. Um, Lord, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see this morning. I pray that you'd give us hearts that could be expanded, that could become bigger. In order to receive all the truth and all the weight of the glory that's talked about in your word and especially in these passages this morning. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for eternal life. We thank you that death has been swallowed up in victory. And we say with confidence, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? It has been swallowed up through the death and resurrection of Christ. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to not shrink back this morning from having timid, scared, fearful hearts that are afraid to look at reality for what it is. That every single one of us one day will take our final breath here on this earth and then we will be ushered into eternal life. Either eternal life with you forever or eternal life in the lake of fire forever. And I pray that you would give us mighty hearts to be able to look at that full on. To not pretend, to not numb ourselves anymore with um, the things of this world that we use just to anesthetize ourselves to ultimate reality. We thank you for saving us, for loving us, for calling us to be your people. And we pray that you would have your way here among us today. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen, good morning. Got your Bibles, grab them. Go to Romans chapter 5. Three verses, kind of, this morning. Um, initially, we had put, set this up that we are going to be looking at verses 15 through 17. I'm going to touch on 17 briefly, but I'm going to kind of save most of 17, or most of the thoughts of 17, to go along with 18, 19, and 20 in a couple weeks when we look at it. But I'm going to read this morning Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 15. It says, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification." For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Father, open the eyes of our heart that we can see wonderful things from your word. Help us today, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, well, this, this last week, uh, some of you know, we, my family and I got a chance to get away. We went down to the uh, Smoky Mountains, Pigeon Forge, Gatlinburg area. It was good. Um, 
yeah, just a good, good time away and thankful for it. Uh, so I you know, knew I was going to be preaching this Sunday, and so the week previous, I tried to kind of study these verses a little bit and, and get some things together, and I didn't want it to be a working vacation, but um, I would get up early in the morning and, uh, and just kind of, not really study, but just kind of meditate upon, upon these verses. Um, and one morning, I, I was up early, maybe 5.30, 6 o'clock, and I was just out reading these passages, and my buddy Merv called me, and he wondered if I'd heard about uh, the school shooting in Nashville, and I had not. I had not um, heard what had happened. And, you know, so I, as I was on the phone with him, I began to Google it and, you know, get that information or whatnot, and, um, and as Nate shared, you know, super sad. But the, the thing that I guess just hit me um, after I hung up with him in the quietness of those morning hours was just how unbelievably relevant and needed and necessary these verses are. So guys, the word of God is absolutely true. It is true. I love what John Piper says. He says, I love the Bible for the same reason that I love my eyes. Not because they're beautiful to look at, but because they help me see. Because they help us see. And in these verses this morning, what, what Paul's been doing throughout the course of Romans is he's been laying out in, in kind of his very typical Pauline way, in almost kind of like legal language, connecting all these little dots of justification and our sin and how Jesus came to be a propitiation, and the dots are very close. But then here in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, he kind of just snaps on the wide-angle lens, so to speak, and he zooms out, and he's speaking about the same thing. We'll look at it here today. You'll see the words condemnation and justification, which are words that have been mentioned before but he's, he puts on this wide-angle lens and he, and he zooms out and he says it's all basically about two men. It's about Adam and it's about Christ. There are two heads of humanity and Mark did a great job last week of, of, of setting that up and talking about how we are all condemned, condemned in, in Adam. But as, as Nate said, as soon as any sort of tragedy like this happens, and please hear me, tragedies happen every single day all over the world. I'm not minimizing anything that happened in Nashville, but at the same time, if I can be honest, I'm also not maximizing it because every single day throughout the history of the world, because of Adam's sin, there has been death. And there has been evil, and it has been bad, and sometimes we hear about it on the news, and sometimes we don't, but it happens every single day. And the reason we need the word of God and the reason I'm thankful for it and the reason I say it's like our eyes and that it helps us to see is because all of us have this question, not just all of us but everybody in the world, what's going on? What's the deal with this? Why is this death here? Why is evil here? Why are lives taken too early? Why does sin, as, as Mark looked at last week, why did sin reign from Adam to Moses and even to now? Why does sin reign? It's because of Adam. Why, I'm sorry, why does death reign? It's because of Adam. Because sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and so sin spread to all men, and here we are. And the mark of sin is death, and so death reigns on every single level. And the world is quick to, to have their own narratives because we all do have a narrative. We all do look through certain glasses. We all do try to see, though if we are not looking through the lens of the Bible, we're not going to understand it. And so the narrative very quickly be, becomes, that well, this is, you know, guns are the problem. Or that my political opponent is the problem. The left is the problem. The right is the problem. But we know what the problem is. The problem is sin. That's the problem. 
That's where it came from. And the world has always been confused by this, but what I pray that would not, would not be true is that the church would not be confused by this. Is that the Bible tells us very clearly where this comes from and what Paul um, does this morning, I think he's doing it to the Roman church, uh, back when he wrote this, I think it's for us this morning, is that in a world, in a world that is filled with confusion, that's been brought about by sin, Paul wants the church to have confidence and clarity in the victory of Christ. You say that again. In a world that is filled with confusion, that has been brought about by sin, Paul wants the church to have confidence and clarity in the victory of Christ. And oh, brothers and sisters, what a victory it is. It's unbelievable. And I pray that the Lord would help us to grasp this this morning. If anybody is in the, Conrad, I don't know if he's in here, Sorry, this is just an awkward aside. Pretend this is just a conversation between me and Conrad. I really need something to drink. My mouth, maybe it's because I was off a week and my mouth's not used to it, but my tongue is totally sticking to the roof of my mouth this morning. It's gonna, you're not going to want to listen to that the whole time. Um, but here's the deal. Romans chapter 5, verse 15. Here's what Paul says, this confidence that we can have in the victory of Christ and how it triumphs over every sort of death, every sort of evil. He says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man abounded to the many. Now throughout this passage, it's already been mentioned, and I mentioned it a couple weeks ago, we'll continue to see it as we go through it, in a couple weeks, you'll have this language of much more and abundance. Here you see it just in verse 15, the word much more and this free gift and that it's abounding, that it abounded for many. And Paul's point here, and again, I'll try to unpack a little later why this actually is true and how this works, but his point here in verse 15 that he wants us to get and why I speak, say that Paul wants us to understand the confidence that we should have in the victory of Christ is that he is declaring that Jesus Christ has overabundantly, with all power and with all authority, he has completely triumphed over the sin of Adam. Many of you guys know right now the, um, what's called March Madness is going on, the NCAA tournaments, you know, both, both men and women's, and you know, it's like championship weekend, and they got the Final Four and all, and all this stuff. There's some good games. There was a good game last night. There was a, there was a buzzer. Be- Thanks, buddy. That is much better. Let's give it up for Derek. Thank you, seriously. I don't know why that happens some weeks. Anyway. But the men's and women's Final Four is going on, and there's been some buzzer beaters. And what, what Paul is not saying here is that in regards to Jesus the last Adam, overcoming the sin of the first Adam. What he is not saying is that Christ does not just eke out a double overtime, last second buzzer beater win over Adam. The the exact opposite of that. What he's saying when this this grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, it, it abounds, it is much more, is that what happened is that Jesus, the second Adam, the last Adam, is a far and infinitely superior opponent to the first Adam. 
and he triumphs over sin in total victory. He doesn't just eke out this last second shot. You're like, oh man, that was close, and I, but I guess we'll take the win and we'll move on. He is infinitely superior in his grace and in his mercy and in the freeness of salvation and of the gift of righteousness that he brings than Adam was in his sin. I don't know that I can say it any more succinctly than Sinclair Ferguson just says it and hear me this morning because if you really hear this, I promise you this will totally rock your world. But I'll I'll be honest with you and I'll say it here in just a second, but many of you will resist this. But I'm telling you it's true and I'm willing to go to the mat with you to get you to believe this. And so let's go, okay? Um, but here's the, here's the statement by Sinclair Ferguson. Very simple, yet it will totally change your life. There is more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in you. It's that simple. There is more grace in Jesus Christ than there was sin in Adam and therefore sin in all of humanity and sin in you. Jesus Christ triumphed over it all. Jesus is not only the better Adam, he is the better David. You remember the story of David and Goliath, that Goliath, the champion from Gath, the the champion of the Philistines, this giant, he came and he stood and he mocked the Israelites and for days he would stand up and he would challenge them and he would say, somebody, send out your best, send out the best among you and let them fight and let's see who gains the victory. And all the Israelites, including Saul, who was head and shoulders above everybody else in Israel, they stood and they were afraid and they did not know what to do until David, this type of Christ, who was to come, he comes out and he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine talking trash about my God? And he goes and he, and he runs out to him, it says, and you guys know the story, he takes the sling, he, sw- he slings the stone, it kills, it kills Goliath, Goliath falls down, and then and again, I'm not, you know, this is a little bit gory. Well, it's in the Bible. Here's what it says. It says, David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him, there was no, and there was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran, and he stood over the Philistine, and he took his sword, and he drew it out of its sheath, and he killed him, and he cut off his head. So I'm going to take you down, and then I'm really going to take you down. And while you're down, I'm going to stand over you in victory. And it says, and the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout, and they pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. And then it goes on, and it says, and the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine, and he brought it to Jerusalem. Listen to me. David's defeat of Goliath was a victory against the Philistines for all of Israel. And in the same way, Christ's defeat of sin is a victory against death for everyone who believes. Christ does not just eke out this last second buzzer beater. He stands with the head of sin and death. And he says, I have conquered it. It is done. It is over. And and we think, it's like we think that the victory still needs to come, that the battle still needs to come. There is a sense in which, yes, we're still living in this world until Christ comes back for the consummation of all things. But again, if I can just use another basketball analogy or sports analogy, it's like the, the game has been over, the championship has been won. But like we're not still waiting for that. That has already happened. We are just simply waiting for the victory parade. That's it. When Jesus comes back, it is going to be a victory parade. He has already triumphed 
over Satan, sin, and death. And that's why we have this message called the gospel, which means good news. That we are to go out and we are to proclaim and we are to call everyone to believe because it really is good news. Adam's sin was pervasive and it affected everyone and everything, including ourselves. But Christ's free gift of righteousness overcame Adam's wickedness. But nothing will ever overcome Christ's gift of righteousness for all who receive it. That's why it's better That's why it abounds, because what Adam did, while it had absolutely tragic consequences, and we see the reality and the results of those consequences every single day in our lives, what Jesus Christ has done is greater than that. And that now death literally becomes a pathway to life. Death was the Goliath that stood and mocked us. Said, what are you going to do? And we, nothing, we're just going to stand here. And we're just going to tremble, but not since Christ has come. Christ came and he defeated it. And folks, I can't listen. If you want three nice little life application points for bettering your life here on this world on a Monday morning, I'm sorry, I don't have it for you this morning. But I promise you, we are talking about something that is more relevant than anything could possibly be. What we're talking about is ultimate reality. That every single one of us in this room and on this planet is going to die. What are you going to do as you know you are going to face that enemy called death? What are you going to do? Where are you going to place your hope? And how are you going to live your life in light of where you have placed your hope? That's why it matters in the here and now. This is, how, this is what our lives should look like. You're like, well, Eric, this is a little bit extreme, and, you know, like, does it really matter? And, you know, you're telling me that I should, like, embrace death and not, and not be afraid of it? I'm just going to let the Apostle Paul answer. Listen to how he speaks, how all of us should speak. In Philippians chapter 1, he says, Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And again, we, we know this next verse, Philippians you know, 1.21, but like, do we really believe it? And can we say it with sincerity like Paul, here's what he says. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now many of us, if we grew up in church, like we memorized that as a little kid. We memorized that at VBS. We memorized that in Sunday school. I'm not talking about whether you memorize it. I'm talking about whether or not you believe it. There's a vast difference. But if we understand the victory of the second Adam that came and conquered the first Adam, conquered the first Goliath that used to mock us, then this should be our anthem. Paul goes on, he says, if, I, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I mean, listen to how he, again, is, is Paul just trying to like wax eloquent here and just, and just preach a good sermon, or does he mean it? I would argue that he really means it, and he means it in sincerity. He goes, which shall I choose? I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. In other words, to live or to die. He goes, my desire is to part and is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. 
But then he goes on and after speaking about his attitude, he exhorts them to have the same attitude. He says only, he says, listen, and, and hear Paul plead with you this morning in light of the victory of the last Adam. He says, listen, only let your life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, do we, do we aspire to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? He says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, and that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything, in anything, in anything, in anything. What if the Democrats stay in the White House? What if they, not afraid of anything. Not afraid of anything. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. I pray that as we continue to look at the life and the victory of the last Adam, that this attitude, this, this mindset, this manner of life, as Paul puts it, would be true about us. And I'm not saying that it's not completely, but we, we, do we not need to grow in this? Amen? Do we not need to embrace this attitude, this manner of life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That we no longer fear the mocking Goliath of death when he stands and talks trash to us? But that we rather stand on the truth Adam brought sin, sin brought death. Christ brings righteousness, and that righteousness brings life. It is an imputed righteousness, and there's a confidence that we are to have that is to mark every single area of our lives. Not only does it breed this confidence, but right along with it, it brings a clarity. The victory of Christ brings a clarity. Verse 16, this, it, this, this free gift abounds. In verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment followed one trespass. This is what I want you to get. Here's a little phrase in this verse that you got to get if you're going to understand it. One trespass brought condemnation. And then the free gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Now again, Mark did a great job of, of, of explaining this last week, but Adam is our representative head of humanity. And when Adam sinned, Christ, God, righteously condemned the entire human race because we were all in him. And if you're like, well, that's not fair, well, you're not God. He's the creator, and we're the creation. And that's the way it works. And I'm glad that that's the way it works, because in the same way that our sin got imputed to us through Adam, in the same way, the only way, it is the only way that righteousness can get imputed to us through Christ. That we were born once in Adam, this is why we must be born again into Christ. A new creation. Again, uh, there, there's so many, we'll get into some of it here, but... <clears throat> So many beautiful, deep parallels that make you help you help us to understand that like none of this is by accident. 
Christ, the Bible says, is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus has always been the plan. He's not plan B, C, D, or E, or whatever. He's always been the plan. And, and he comes as the head of a new creation. The first creation happens in Adam, the man born of dust. And again, we, Paul goes into this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But secondly, the man from heaven comes. Not the man from the dust, from the earth, but the man from above to create a new creation. And when we simply believe, or as this text says, when we simply receive it, we are brought into this new creation. And where one, where sin reigned and death reigned, now grace reigns and righteousness reigns, leading to eternal life. But you have this, this one trespass. Sorry, that was, I got off from what I wanted to say. Um, this one trespass brings condemnation, and one, and this, this one free gift follows many trespasses and brings justification. The reason I say this brings, brings clarity is because, again, thinking about any tragedy in the world, apart from the Bible telling us what's true, we don't have a grid for what's happening, and we don't have a grid for what the real problem is. The real problem for all of us is that we stand condemned before an almighty, holy God. There is none like him, and there, are none, there is none that is righteous, no, not one. That is the biggest problem. The biggest problem in the universe, I'm sorry, and I'm, hear me, I'm not minimizing it, I'm just saying you have to set things rightly, because if, like, for years we thought that the earth was the center of the solar system. What a big difference it makes when it realizes that we're not. <laughs> and if you think that your little problem, like this problem is the center of everything, your life's going to spin out of control. Things are not going to stay in orbit. orbit. It's going to be disordered. But when you understand that the biggest problem in the universe is that you all stand condemned, I stand condemned before an almighty, holy God, now suddenly that sets things right. The biggest problem in the universe isn't your child. It's not your parent. It's not your marriage, it's not your job, it's not your finances. The biggest problem in the universe is what are you going to do on that day when you stand before an almighty holy God? And then every other problem, again, are they true? Absolutely, they're, they're the result of Adam's sin, but now those fall into order. When we have clarity on what the real problem is, and the, the clarity that we need is that we stand condemned because of this one trespass, it brings condemnation and man how we need how we need to get this how we need to get this you know Christian subculture is a I don't know it's, it's a funny thing you know it's a little memes and different things that we send out and that, and that people create and you know they're little like kind of Christian jokes um, there's one little phrase I, some of you may not be familiar with this um, if not you can Google it, it's on YouTube, not now, but after the service. Um, but of, I, th I believe it was from a, a, a Bible conference of self, some sort back in 2016 where R.C. Sproul, along with some other conference speakers, were taking a Q&A session. And one of the questions, and there was a guy up there that was getting, receiving the questions, and then he, he's reading the questions, and then they're supposed to answer them. And one of the questions that they got uh, and this, again, this has kind of become famous in certain Christian circles or whatever. Um, but here was the question. It said, 
since God is slow to anger and patient, why, when men first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and so long-lasting? So do you understand the question? The question, well, if, if God's so patient and kind, why was his punishment so severe? And there's a brief pause, and there's a panel up there, and then R.C. Sproul, <laughs> he goes, time out. And this is the quote here. He says, that God's punishment for Adam was so severe? This creature from the dirt defiled the everlasting holy God and God said that the day you eat of it you should surely die and instead of dying on that day he got to live another day? And he was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace and had the consequences of a curse applied for quite some time, but the worst curse would come upon the one who seduced him, by whose hand he would be crushed by the seed of the woman, and the punishment was too severe? And then he goes, and then there's this, just a brief pause, and then he, he just, it, it was, uh, you could tell it was not planned, it was not, uh, it was spontaneous, sorry, that's the word, it was spontaneous, he just goes, what's wrong with you people? And then, and then there was this, and there was laughter like that. And then, but he wasn't joking. And he continues on. He goes, he goes, I'm serious. He goes, I, I mean this. This is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. The question is, why wasn't it, being the punishment and wrath, infinitely more severe? And he goes on and says, if we have any understanding of our sin and understanding of who God is, that's the real question. End of quote. And I, it's so true. And even as a Christian, as a disciple, somebody who's walked with Jesus for 20 years, as a pastor, I still lose sight of this at times. My, my inward sins, my outward sins, the things that I've said, the things that I've done, the things that I've looked at, the things that um, others have, uh, that I, where I've held grudges against others, the things that I hold in the private of my heart, the ways that I've hurt those that I love, the way that I've hurt those that I hate. All these sinful actions. And Christ came to conquer them all. And I said because it, the one trespass to condemnation, but then that little phrase, the free gift followed many trespasses. Oh, oh many. That, that word many in that verse, but the free gift followed many trespasses. It's a ridiculous understatement. Think about just the many trespasses in Eric Miller's life. Let alone the many trespasses in the world that Jesus Christ came to save us from because this is our primary problem and yet we think that other things are the problem. But Jesus Christ came and he took it he took it all. 
and not just my sin, but the sin of the world. And if, you, if we do not understand the severity of our sin in light of a holy God, folks, we will never understand God's grace. You'll never be able to rejoice in it. That, that John the Baptist got this when Jesus comes on the scene. Remember the first thing that he says in John's gospel, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But only if we have any awareness by God's grace of our sin will that be good news at all. But when you understand our sinfulness, your sinfulness, it becomes the best news in the world. It becomes good news that gives us a victory that is unbelievable and completely changes the way that we live our lives. Jesus himself said this, by the way, uh, right after probably the most famous verse in all the Bible, being John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We all know that one. Most of us know that one, right? Maybe not everybody. But it's a pretty famous one. But then he goes on, and we don't know these so well. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Listen, but whoever does not believe, whoever has not, does not believe, is condemned already. <laughs> because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. The whole world stands condemned before God in our sin, in Adam. What will we do? We need a savior. There's a ton of parallels between Adam and Christ. Flip with me quickly. We'll come back to here. But just again, put on some more flesh on this. Flip with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 and Luke chapter 4. End of chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4. Um, and I believe that, again, the way Paul is writing in Romans with these tight little dots and connecting them, then he snaps on the wide-angle lens and begins to talk in big terms, broad strokes about Adam and Christ. I believe he's inviting us to meditate upon what he's saying and to think about why this is true. Excuse me. And over the course of the whole Bible, the biblical narrative, um, the parallels are many. Paul doesn't speak of all of them here, but I, again, I think he's inviting us to think upon this. In Luke's gospel, he does something very interesting. So in Matthew and Mark's gospel, two events in, in Jesus' life are put up against each other back to back, very tight with no gap. So in both Matthew and Mark, Jesus is baptized and then immediately he goes into the wilderness and is tempted by the devil for 40 days. Luke shares the same story, but then he does this interesting thing from a literary perspective. Right after the baptism of Jesus in John, or I'm sorry, in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, he immediately, before speaking of his temptation in the wilderness at the beginning of chapter 4, he inserts, as I guess you would do, a genealogy. So Matthew and Mark, baptism, wilderness temptation. Baptism, wilderness temptation. Luke, baptism, genealogy, wilderness temptation. Why? Well, look at where he ends up, and we won't go through this all, but where does, where does Luke take his genealogy? Uh, the last verse of Luke chapter 3, verse 38, he takes it all the way back to, not Abraham, as Matthew does in his genealogy, but he takes it back to Adam. Verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the Son of God, and then he rolls into chapter four, 
And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, you, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus said to him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you shall be given all of, all of their authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. But... If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and only him shall you serve. Verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from there, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you and guard you, and on their, ha- and on their hands he will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, and he said, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Why does Luke do this is because he's calling our attention to the fact that Jesus is the better Adam. Adam was set in a context of a garden that was overflowing with blessing and abundance. Christ came in the context of a curse in the desert the context of barrenness and of a curse. Why? Because the first Adam had disobeyed. Adam folded at the first temptation, just like we all fold at the first temptation. But Christ endured for 40 days. And not just for 40 days, but he lived a life of perfect obedience by himself in the wilderness. Adam remained silent and stood by as Satan tempted his wife and did nothing. Christ spoke the word of God with confidence, and he said, this is what is true to the lies of the devil. Adam brought condemnation by taking from a tree. Jesus Christ brings justification by going and giving his life on a tree. Adam's act of taking from the tree was an act of self-assertion, opposed to the word of God. Christ's act on the tree was one of self-sacrifice, giving himself up for us all. Do you understand why Paul says that what Adam brought about, it is conquered fully, abundantly, much morally in Christ? The acts of Jesus Christ are infinitely greater than the acts of Adam. Again, there is more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in you. Will you receive it? Have you received it? Do you know him? Do you know him? There's a well-known man of God throughout history named John Bunyan. Um, He's probably most famous for the book that he wrote called Pilgrim's Progress. Anybody heard of that? I believe outside of the Bible, in the English-speaking world, it's the best-selling book of all time, apart from the Bible. Um, And Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. It's a long, drawn-out word picture, story, allegory, of this man, Christian, who goes through all these different um, trials and obstacles on his way to the eternal city. And again, it's fairly well known and people have referred to it often throughout, throughout history. 
But John Bunyan wrote another book. I love this. Hear me here. He wrote another book, and the title of this book is called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And he wrote it while he was in prison for 12 years. He had four kids that he didn't see for 12 years. The oldest of them, I believe, was blind. His wife had a miscarriage while he was in prison. And he writes this book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. But hear me, hear me. It wasn't an allegory. That's the title that he chose to to give to his autobiography. And I love that picture of the Pilgrim's Progress, and again, it's good and it's helpful, but it's an allegory. But when he's speaking, not an allegory, but he's speaking about his life, about his testimony, about his story, how would you sum it up? Here's the title he gives it, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Do you hear me? It's not an allegory, folks. Each and every single one of us who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior could give that same title to our lives. For me, for Eric Miller, I will, man, I guess it's already taken, you know, John Bunyan took it, but I, I don't care. I, it's just grace abounding to the chief of this sinner. It's just true. I don't know what else to say. It's just true. And for over 20 years, since even God really grabbed a hold of my heart, I really tasted of that grace. I, I continue to sin. And his grace continues to abound. I, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> By the way, I honestly, I've gone to the mat with the Lord in prayer <laughs> that he would help me to stop crying while I preach. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I, I, I actually, I don't, like, none of my, like, the guys that I look up to as heroes of the faith, like, I don't see him crying. I'm like, why... Eric, just stop it, you know, but I can't, I can't, like I, grace abounding to the chief of sinners. I wonder if you would please, please just embrace that as the title of your biography this morning. Because it's true. If you have received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, it's true. If you've not received Jesus Christ as your Savior by faith, then you stand condemned. But it can be true for you today, right now. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's what makes the good news the good news, not just what Christ done, but the way we receive it. It is only through faith. Worship team, you can come up and we'll close. Um, We're going to take communion today. Uh, 
Again, the parallels between Adam and Christ, the first Adam and the last Adam. They are so rich, they are so abundant, and we only scratched the surface of them this morning. But, again, it, it draws you back into the bigger biblical narrative in the story. But as I was thinking about it this past week and knowing that we're taking communion this morning, um, <clears throat> you think about how the devil came and he lied to Adam and Eve in the garden. And essentially his lie was, just take it, take it, eat, it's all right. Did God really say? God said, don't eat, but just, it's all right, take it, eat. And I think that there's a beautiful, poetic, triumphant irony in that Christ defeats the curse that was brought in by the devil and through Adam believing that lie and saying, take, eat, by Christ instituting this and saying, here's the answer. Take, eat. This is my body that was broken for you. If you're helping serve communion, come down, please. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he did, he took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. As often as you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. The same way after supper, he took the cup. He said, this is my blood in the new covenant. As often as you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. And as we come this morning, men and women, um, I, again, we, we can't drum anything up. I don't want anything to be artificial. But just, I pray that we'd be able to come with a fresh illumination of the victory that Christ offers and that is represented for us here in his broken body and his shed blood. There is more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in you or sin in the world. And that grace is yours only by faith. Please receive it. Even right now where you sit and as you come, receive it, believing that whatever the death is that you're facing because of Adam's sin and because of our sin and all the death no matter what it is, Christ's victory is greater. This is such good news. Father, thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you that grace abounds to us, chief of sinners. Pray that you would show your power and your strength in our life. Not in keeping us from suffering, but helping us to endure in the midst of suffering and to be able to do it with joy, the joy of the Holy Spirit, the joy of Christ that was won for us on the cross. The joy that comes not through our own strength or through our own working something up, but the joy that comes as a fruit of the Holy Spirit, changing us from the inside out.
Pray that we could say with Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain. We pray that we would be willing to go. We pray that we would be willing to give you everything in light of the all-surpassing value of knowing Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.